0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we live in a world that shouts at us that we need to be all that we can be, that we need to become our own brand, that we need to become extraordinary. Our guest today, Dr. Robert J. Wicks, urges us to turn in the opposite direction, to move towards interdependence, humility, and authenticity. We discuss his recent book, The Tao of Ordinariness, Humility and Simplicity in a Narcissistic Age. Stay tuned. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash not seen radio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Wicks. He's professor emeritus at Loyola University in Maryland, and he's published more than 50 books for professionals and the general public. He's a sought-after keynote speaker and workshop presenter. He gives dozens of major talks around the world every year, speaking to helping professionals and healers. He's lectured on the importance of resilience, self-care, and maintaining a healthy perspective. Today, we're going to be talking about his recent book, The Tao of Ordinariness, Humility and Simplicity in a Narcissistic Age. Robert J. Wicks, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. Well, to start off our conversation, I think I'm going to start with your title itself and ask you, in this book you're talking about sort of two words, one of which I think we know the meaning of, and one might be unfamiliar to my listeners, so let's start with the more familiar one. When you're talking about ordinariness, what are you meaning by that term here in the title, the Tao of Ordinariness?
1: That's a good question because it can be interpreted in many ways. I see ordinariness as an attitude or a, or a stance that allows people to explore and be intrigued by the current realities and the possibilities in themselves. I think that's why a movement a number of years ago in psychology and psychiatry, the positive psychology movement, tried to get people to explore their signature strengths. Not only the ones that they knew about, but the ones that that they really hadn't explored as yet. So this ordinariness is the kinds of things we see in children, where they get excited about themselves and in a good way. I, I remember my two grandchildren uh, when I saw photos of them as when they were really small. One was beaming with joy after unwrapping the gift of a toy doctor's kit. And the other one, the younger one, was dancing freely in a red turtleneck and a fancy dress thrown over it. And she's holding up one arm, reaching for the sky and having a wonderful look of sheer joy in her face. So that, that whole sense of ordinariness has been important in many cultures and it's lost its way in our culture. For example, the Bantu tribesmen, as they sought to guide their children toward greater fullness in life, they would slip into their rooms when they were sleeping, and they would whisper in their ears, become what you are, become what you are. So I think ordinariness is much more than than people give it credit for at this
0: point. This is fascinating to me, so I want to make sure that I'm following what you're saying. So, ordinariness is not plainness, it's not boringness, it's being open to what is right in front of you? Have I understood that correctly, or, or am I am I missing it?
1: Well, you, you almost have it. It's not so much in front of you, it's what's within you. It's that sense of calling to be all that you can be. Each person is born with a different set of DNA and genetics and, and childhood experiences, and... The reality is it's there. There's a template. And rather than seeking other templates, which advertising makes money on, saying unless you're this or that, then you're, you're not worthwhile, what I'm suggesting in the Tao of ordinariness is that we take out some time to explore what's within us and what's been freely given to us and what a gift we are to others.
0: So if we were to think about what the opposite of what you mean by ordinariness would be, what would be a term that you would use for the opposite of what you're trying to get at in this word, ordinariness?
1: Probably fake, contrived, assembled. It's you know constantly changing, or rather chasing an idol. I, I would see it as that.
0: That's, uh, I, I'm we're going to come back to that idea of chasing an idol, but since we're kind of setting the table for the listeners right now, I, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that there's another word in your title, the Tao of ordinariness, that may be less familiar to my listeners, and that's this three-letter word, Dao T-A-O. What does that word mean in your understanding as you're using it here in the title?
1: Well, the simple definition of it is the way, but it means much more than then we understand way. It, It really is the journey of ordinariness. It is the pilgrimage of ordinariness. So that being ordinary is really extraordinary, is extraordinary. And you can sense it when you're with people who have that, that sense of appropriate transparency and are themselves Because you feel at ease. It it really does have an impact on you.
0: Well, you actually take up this idea in your book, The Tao of Ordinariness. There's one image that you give us of a person who had interacted with, I believe it was the Dalai Lama, or maybe it was Desmond Tutu, and the person reported that this must be a holy man, and then they were pressed on why. You know, what was it that you saw that made you think that this person was holy? And the response was, I felt holy when I was with them. Now, First of all, have I remembered that story correctly? And is that getting at what you're meaning about this extraordinary ordinariness?
1: Yes, yes. It was a seminarian at General Theological Seminary in New York City, and he was sitting next to the dean, and halfway through the presentation, he pointed up and said, Desmond Tutu is a holy man. And the dean looked at him and said, well, how do you know? you know? And uh, the young man didn't even blink. He said, I know that Desmond Tutu is holy because when I'm with Desmond Tutu, I feel holy. And I think that that's what happens when we have that sense of ordinariness, because rather than drawing from the people that we're with, we give them the message that their ordinariness is worthwhile. I was out in L.A., Uh, to speak to a pretty large group of people and I was up there giving the presentation and after it was over there was a line of people to ask questions and then this young woman I'm not good at age but I would guess maybe 16 or 17 waited patiently at the end of the line and and then when she had her turn she said I didn't have a question for you. I said you didn't she said no your talk wasn't what I expected and then I thought oh And after that, she said, I expected with your credentials that you would talk down to us. Instead, you told stories about yourself and your own journey, and you walked with us. And when she said that, not only was it probably the most encouraging words I've heard in a long while, but also reinforced my belief that if we can open up a space through our ordinariness for others, then they will have the courage to explore their own sense of self that has great value.
0: So I'm thinking right now about what you just said in that comment that the young woman made to you, talking down versus walking with. And I'm trying to think about that in light of your explanation of the word Tao as not just the way, but the journey. And so right now, my mental image is two people on a path walking side by side, sharing a conversation. And so when I'm thinking of that image, is that part of what you're trying to get at by the use of the word Tao? So it's not just a singular journey, but it's a journey of of walking with.
1: Yes, yes, you've got it. I mean, it's this walking with is Carl Buhner once said, they may forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. When you are Simply, and i you can put that in quotes, yourself, and you're walking with people, they can really feel a sense of freedom. What, I once went to see uh, somebody who was living by himself, and he was really someone that I wanted to meet because of his simplicity. And when I left him, I didn't feel that I had aged at all. Because aging takes friction, and, and I could have said anything to him. I could have said, you're a dork, and and I think his response would have been, you know, well, yes, I do dorky things. How did you pick that up? You know, the, there was a non, sense of non-defensiveness that was in his heart, and it was wonderful to experience.
0: But I'm also, I have another thought about this use of the word Tao as journey and not just way. In addition to the mental image of two people walking on a path, I also thought about a pilgrimage. And a pilgrimage, we think, okay, you get up and you just walk from one place to another, and the place that you're getting to is a holy place. But a pilgrimage takes training, it takes planning, it takes time, and it takes courage. And I'm also thinking about something like running a race, like a marathon runner. Like, you don't just get up one morning and say, I'm going to run a marathon. Or if you do, you could do serious harm to yourself. And, right. and so, so this, this word Tao in addition to companionship, does it also require preparation? Does it require stamina? Does it require building up strength? Am I getting that image correctly, or would you say it in a different way?
1: No, I think you're on to one of the chapters in the book, which focuses on the fact that it it really does take a sense of tenacity and persistence and courage. I remember the contemplative Thomas Merton, the author of Seven Story Mountain, he was in his Trappist monastery, and he was walking past the day room, and in the day room was a, another monk, oh, must have been in the monastery maybe 40 years, and he looked down, and Merton walked in, and he said to him, are you okay? And he said, well, no, I'm not okay, Father Lewis. I'm feeling down. I'm feeling depleted. I may be losing my spirit, even my faith. Well, if somebody... That long in in, in the Trappist Monastery came to me and said that I would have to take a moment. What could you say to someone who's already had this experience and this this tenacity on this pilgrimage? What Merton did is he smiled at the, the old gent and he put his hand on his shoulder, looked in his eyes and said, Brother, courage comes and goes. Hold on for the next supply. And I think that that's what our journey, our pilgrimage and ordinariness is about. We're going to find at different turns in our life that, in fact, people are going to be selling another image, another goal than we need to be following. And, and, and then that's, that's tough. I mean, that's, that's really difficult because, you know, it means that we have to stand against something and it, it's not so easy.
0: And there's so much there in what you've just given us, and I I want to give all of it its due. But just before we go to break, I want to ask about, just quickly, your subtitle for the book is Humility and Simplicity in a Narcissistic Age. And I'm just wondering if, if before we go to break, you could also let me and my listeners know what you mean by narcissism in this subtitle.
1: Well, narcissism is really more than than just taking a couple of of selfies— It's really being so involved in yourself that you really become closed to to any information that might expand your knowledge of yourself and have you see where you're running away from that knowledge. In its extreme, it's called narcissistic personality disorder, and it includes such things as the need for extreme and unwavering admiration. Constant exaggeration or fabrication of achievements or gifts or talents, monopolizing attention in conversations or a tendency, for example, to be sarcastic or belittling or condescending to others. And people with this disorder also have an exaggeration of self-importance, and they have an absence of humility, which would involve self-reflection, and they take advantage of others and expect complete loyalty without feeling the need to return the favor and and have an inability to be aware of and respect of the feelings or needs of others. So they lack awareness of their own arrogant, conceited, and pretentious and boastful manner. So as a result, they never get to really embrace who they are because they've built this this fence. And Defense can be very, very difficult because they can be very dismissive and explosive and emotionally labile and difficult to deal with because they can't regulate their speech, control their anger or their tweets that they send out. So what I tried to put in this book is a caution about that and people to not see humility in the wrong way.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Dr. Robert J. Wicks. He's Professor Emeritus at Loyola University, Maryland. We're discussing his recent book, The Tao of Ordinariness, Humility and Simplicity in a Narcissistic Age. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Robert J. Wicks. We're talking about his recent book, The Tao of Ordinariness: Humility and Simplicity in a Narcissistic Age. There's a joke that you include in one of the chapters of your book, The Tao of Ordinariness, and I, I'm gonna do the first part of the joke, and then I'd like for you to complete the joke for us. So it's it's a rabbi and a cantor. And so for my listeners who don't know, the, the, the cantor is the person who sort of sings the scripture in a Jewish service and a janitor, and the, the rabbi walks to the front of the synagogue and holds up his hands and says, I am nothing, I am nothing. And seeing this, the cantor walks up to the front and mimics the rabbi and also says with even greater emphasis, I am nothing, I am nothing. And then please finish the joke for us.
1: Yes, and after the cantor said that in a very booming voice that cantors have, there was a janitor in the back, and he watched them both and said, oh, I should emulate them. So he went up and he said, looked up at the heavens and said, I am nothing, I am nothing. At which point the rabbi turned to the cantor and said, look who thinks he's nothing. (laughs) The whole sense of, of humility is a tough one because... As soon as you think you're being humble, obviously you're not. So it's a it's a journey, and uh, it, it, even if you want it, doesn't mean you'll have it. I story will illustrate that. Um, my daughter is a social worker, and she works for the VA with severely injured returning Iraqi and Afghani vets, and she has two little girls. And uh, when they were about oh maybe six and eight, she said to them after dinner one day, she said, "You know." She said, "You you've been given gifts, talents. You know, you've been given them by God. How do you? What are they that you're going to share with the world?" And they love these exercises, you know. So they launch into what they feel their like gifts are, and they go on and on. And finally, when they stopped, my son-in-law who was sitting at the table and hadn't said anything, he said, "In addition to that, what about humility?" And the little, the smallest one said well, what exactly is it? And he said, well, get the dictionary. He's he's not so young that he said, Google it, you know. So they got the dictionary and he, he read the definition and he said, well, who do you think of now? And the youngest and the oldest and my daughter all chimed in together and said, mom," referring to my wife. And he said, well, what about pop up?" And they shook their head side to side and he said, no, not pop up." So even if we want this gift, it doesn't mean it's a guarantee, but I think we need to search for humility as a gift, as a, as a talent, as a virtue, as a signature strength that's aligned with ordinariness. Because when you take knowledge and you add humility, you get wisdom. And when you take that very wisdom and add it to compassion, you get love. And love is at the heart of life. And without that,
0: You miss so much. There's so much there that I want to dig into. And one of the things that I was thinking of as you were telling that story and, and explaining about humility, there's a phenomenon now in popular culture known as the humble brag where you're saying something very aggrandizing about yourself, but you're saying it as if it's nothing and as if it's very, very small and and insignificant. And you're not talking about that. And I want to make sure that that's clear, because in the first segment, we talked about extraordinary ordinariness. And we live in a culture that is so attuned to want to make us into like these huge marketed individuals, like your own personal brand, you're not talking about finding a different way to market yourself so that you seem more palatable to others. You're talking about something very different, aren't you?
1: Yes, yes, because you'll often hear the statement, you know, I'm so humbled by having achieved this great accomplishment. Well, obviously, the person who's saying that even if they mean well by saying it that way, are saying essentially you're going to have to go some to be as wonderfully humble as me because look at what I've done. And it's just a an inauthentic way of praising yourself. And there's nothing wrong with claiming the talents that you have. As a matter of fact, humility, it's not burying the gifts that you've been given. But what it is is It's claiming your gifts in one hand and your growing edges or defenses in the other hand and seeing them with a sense of equanimity. It would be very foolish to put your talents under a bushel basket. But by the same token, most of those talents were gifts that you were given through birth, and also they were enhanced by friendship and mentors and not giving them credit
0: it's crazy. Well, something about the story that you told about your family makes me think this as well. So you said that humility is something that you may want, but the recognition of humility isn't something that you can give to yourself. I, I almost want to say that as soon as I start saying, I'm so humble. I've committed a humble brag, kind of the example that you were giving a moment before. What we're really hoping for is that others will look at us, if I'm hearing you correctly, and will say, yes, this person is humble. This person makes me feel holy when I'm with them. This person makes me feel whole when I'm with them. Am I understanding the mechanism correctly? Is it something that is given to us by others, this notion of our achievement of humility?
1: Well, I think what it is, is it's a recognition of authenticity and genuineness. And it's a recognition they can pick up on you that you realize this is not something you've achieved on your own. And when they do, it really, they feel freedom in themselves. I remember I had a woman who was sexually abused as a child, and I was seeing her as an adult. And we were getting to the end of the treatment, and I wanted to make an intervention. I wanted to say something to her. But I didn't want to be a hypocrite because when I supervise psychiatrists or psychologists or helpers in, in, in any form, I say to them, when you say something to a patient or a client or someone you're guiding, I should be able to ask you later in clinical supervision, why did you say that? Why did you say that now? Why did you say that now in that way? And what did you expect? Don't tell me it was intuition. You... Good intuition comes out of good discipline. So in her case, I wanted, I thought about it before I said anything. I said, I want to accomplish two things. One, I want her to take credit for all the hard work she did in therapy. And number two is I want to ask her how she got to this place so that when she enters darkness again, because darkness comes and goes for us all, she'll know what to do. That was my brainstorm. So I said to her, picture my face as a mirror. What do you see? She said, I see a woman alive with the spirit again, a woman who's resurrected that little girl that was lost because of the abuse in her family. And she's integrated that little girl with the woman she is now, and because of it, she's hot stuff. And I said, yes, you are hot stuff, but how did you get to this place? You weren't this way when you came in to see me. And she stopped and leaned back and she said, you mean you don't know? And I said, I would never ask you a question I knew the total answer to. She said it was quite simple. And then I really was caught flat. I I said, simple? She said, yeah. The first time I came in here to see you, I simply watched how you sat with me. And then I began sitting with myself in the same way. I think that's what ordinariness does. It has... It opens up a space so that we can, on the one hand, be very clear about ourselves, but not just clear because we would cause narcissistic injury. We would hurt ourselves to the core. And in the other hand, be kind with ourselves, but not just kind because then we would not grow. But with this balance of clarity and kindness, we can find our ordinary self in really all its splendor because... True ordinariness really is, you know, it's almost like tangible holiness. It's an amazing thing to experience in a human being.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Robert J. Wicks. He's Professor Emeritus at Loyola University in Maryland. He's much published, and he travels all over the world talking to people about how to integrate various types of healing sciences into their work and their lives. Today, we're talking about his recent book, The Tao of Ordinariness, Humility and Simplicity in a Narcissistic Age. There's something that you have said repeatedly in our conversation so far. You you keep saying in some fashion that we are dependent upon others for the mechanism of this kind of journey to ordinariness. And it makes me think again and again, of a quotation that comes i guess about halfway through your book and it's just a it's a simple line but it stuck with me and it's from Reinhold Niebuhr the the 20th century theologian and Niebuhr says nothing we do however virtuous can be accomplished alone and so i'd like to ask you about the role of mentors in ordinariness how do others work explicitly in this process of helping us find and discover and cultivate and be courageous in our own ordinariness
1: Oh, that's important. That's very important. I think basically, you know, friendship is is very, very important. I recall that Cameroonian proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. But I think that it's important for us to not just say we need good friends, but to key in on four types. One is the prophet. And and no one likes the prophet. I mean, Henry Thoreau once said, if you see someone coming to do good for you, run for your life. Um, but the prophet asked the question, what voices are guiding us? What voices are we responding to in life? They almost show that we're looking in a mirror, you know, and the mirror is the public around us. The second is the cheerleader, who's a sympathetic person and really thinks we're wonderful. And if you just have profits, you'll burn out. If you just have cheerleaders, you won't grow, but they balance each other. And the third is the harasser or teaser, and the harasser or teaser is that person that, that catches us when we really are taking something meaningful in our life seriously, and we mistakenly do a detour and start to take ourselves too seriously. And we can see that on television and people from different areas of society when they're taking themselves too seriously, which is dangerous because what they do is they become brittle and not only do they break, but picture a tree limb breaking and falling on what's around them. Uh, and then the final friend is the mentor, the inspirational friend that calls us to be all that we can be without embarrassing us that we are where we are. But the mentor is an interesting character, because they often ask questions that invigorate our thinking to see the possibility and challenges in new ways. And they help us return to the clatter and commotion of our life differently, you know, maybe with some more humility or dignity. Paradoxically, they don't ask us to have faith in them, but they demonstrate faith in us, and they help us to be in touch with the truth that's bigger than the ones that Maybe be guiding us at this point. And they're sincere, you know, and and they often give us psychological room to be ourselves that maybe our parents couldn't for some reason. And they encourage a sense of wonder and awe and stand with us in the darkness. And, and they also, they share their charisma, their gift, in a way that allows us not to copy them, but to find our own. So mentors really provide the guidance without giving the answers they offer the support but don't remove our own independence and faith in ourselves to discover an approach that would be most suitable given our own unique personality and circumstances
0: there was a a, a sentence that sort of hit in the middle there that jumped out to me and i want to kind of dig into it because you say that the mentor oftentimes gives us the kind of support and challenging invigorating questions That our parents weren't able to give us as you were talking about the various categories leading up to the mentor you talk about the prophet the cheerleader and the harasser or the teaser i have two small children and i think about you know interacting with other parents and my own habits and inclinations as a parent and i realize how easy it is as a parent to fall into particularly one of the middle categories to be a cheerleader all the time but I've also seen parents who are harassers and teasers and are breakdowners. They, they want to break down their children emotionally for whatever reason, either because they think that it makes them tough or just for petty victories. But I really want to dig into this and ask, how can parents learn better to be mentors in the way that you mean? What do we need to be doing? What do we need to be doing to train ourselves so that we can be there as this role for our children?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Well, I would, I would touch on two things. One is parents are never going to match the personality style exactly of their children. They might align in some way so that you'll notice that, that one child is closer to mom than dad and the other one is closer to dad than mom because of, of a likeness in, in personality structure. But basically the music should be a sense of acceptance. And that acceptance doesn't mean that we, we you know, run up and defend them at school when, when the school disciplines them or something. And it's a music, it's a music, and you need both the music and the lyrics. And the music is this sense of truly, you know, both non-verbally and verbally demonstrating to them that you love and respect them. Now, the lyrics of it, of of this relationship, this mentoring relationship in the family is important as well. That's why in the Tao of Ordinariness, I put that list that I just gave you in it. And I spoke about and I think that if a parent would just, you know, go to the library, get the book and Xerox that one page and just use that as a reflective device, I think that their parenting would improve. And they, in, in, and also, they would begin to recognize, as they're reflecting on it, that they're not perfect. So that when they fail, they would recognize that the more I really try, the more I'm going to fail, because statistically, the more you're involved, the more you're going to fail. It's part and parcel of involvement. So that, that I think some parents are too hard on themselves because they fail. Uh, when I work with surgical residents, I say to them, you know, one of the things you're going to have to recognize is, is that in your tenure as a surgeon, you're going to kill people, maybe not through malpractice, but through mispractice, because you can't be on 100% of the time at an A-level. It's impossible. And as parents, we can't be on at an A-level 100% of the time. So while we set the tone for our children, and while we use that the lyrics that I just described to you, I think we need to do the same for ourselves.
0: Now, you just did a turn there when you were talking about the lecture that you gave to the physicians, and it's a turn that you make at several points in your book as well, and you, you note this as a habit that you have. Sometimes in a clinical or therapeutic moment, you will ask the impish question, or you will point out the uncomfortable truth and I just want to sort of ask about that as a as a technique in the therapeutic and clinical moment. You're calling someone's bluff in that moment. You can't be on your A-game all the time. As a surgeon, you're gonna kill people sometimes. That sounds like a harsh thing to say. Why is it necessary at times in a clinical or therapeutic moment to say something like that?
1: Well, because I think that people need to be honest with themselves and need to take themselves seriously as being a human being i think what happens for example and this may sound a feel but it's related i think what happens why people don't take out time in silent solitude and rapt in gratitude to center themselves in mindfulness meditation or simply taking some quiet reflective time or as what some people might say is prayer is because they could get, get down three dead ends. And one of them is arrogance, where they project the blame on others. And it's fun to do that, but if you give away all the blame, then you give away the power to change. The second is ignorance, where they condemn themselves. And I see this as negative grandiosity, and I'm puzzled when religious people do it, because it's almost like they're saying that they're greater than God in condemning themselves. And finally, ignorance, rather uh, discouragement, because they're not getting the results they want immediately. Instead, I think we need to have a sense of intrigue about ourselves so that when I speak about failure with people, I try to get them to realize that too much energy in society today is put on success and not on what we should be doing. And you might say, well, what should we be doing? Well, when I was in South Africa, post-apartheid, working with the helpers and healers there, at the break, a woman came up to me and said, you know, I just can't do it anymore. And I said, well, what is it that you do? She said, oh, I'm a social worker and I work with women who've been sexually and physically abused and I try to get them justice. And they have to take a day off from work to go to court to get that justice. And they're often poor and can't afford it. And they're a single parent. But yet they do it. And then we get to the court, show the papers to the judge. And the judge looks at it and says, you know, well, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Make another appointment. And she said to me, I'm a total failure. And I let the dust settle because she was upset. And I said, well, who was with that woman other than you at that moment? She said, well, no one. I said, would it be an exaggeration to say you were closer to her at that moment than anyone else in the world? She said, no, it wouldn't be. And then in as gentle a voice as I could muster, I said, and you want to leave that? I said, don't you realize we are not in the success business? We're in the faithfulness business. And that's what I'm hoping that the Tao of ordinariness does. It helps people focus more on personal and professional faithfulness to what is good in themselves and in what they can do for others, rather than getting so tied up in the compulsive search for success and get caught in the dead end of narcissism.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Dr. Robert J. Wicks. We're talking about his recent book, The Tao of Ordinariness, Humility and Simplicity in a Narcissistic Age. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal Magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a long-time reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org/podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Robert J. Wicks about his recent book, The Tao of Ordinariness, Humility and Simplicity in a Narcissistic Age. Dr. Wicks is professor emeritus at Loyola University in Maryland. He's lectured all over the world. He's written many books, and today we're talking about this most recent one, so, there's an image that you have used at several points in our conversation, and it's the image of a mirror, and that a mentor, for example, allows someone like a mirror to see themselves more clearly and to and to understand both their strengths and their weaknesses more clearly by asking sort of, your phrase, invigorating questions. This notion of the mirror has stuck with me because the subtitle of your book, Humility and Simplicity in a Narcissistic Age, the subtitle of The Tao of Ordinariness, The mirror is the tool of the narcissist. In fact, it's right there in the name because the narcissist is named for Narcissus, and Narcissus is the one that famously saw his own image in the pond and could never break away from that image. He just fell in love with his own image. So how is it... Given the fact that a tool for narcissism, like a mirror, can be used for such dastardly ends, how is it that a mentor or this relationship that acts like a mirror is different and creates a different outcome than narcissism?
1: Mm. Well, I think that what happens is is that when we have a mentor who doesn't take herself seriously or himself seriously, and, and the mentor also doesn't play down the talents that they have or exaggerate the issues that they have to deal with, I think that, that what happens is is that then we have the courage to also be ourselves and search for ourselves. I quoted Anna Quindlin in the book. She said, the thing that is really hard and really amazing is giving up on being perfect and beginning the work of be, becoming yourself and, and it's echoed by Viktor Frankl in his really wonderful book, Man's Search for Meaning*, He said, live as if you were living a second time and as though you had acted wrongly the first time. Well, what happens there is that the mentor in, in mentors in their ordinariness, you know, we begin to lean back, and unlike narcissists, we look in and not only see what we want to see, but we, first of all, see what's there. I mean, there's an honesty and a transparency. But in seeing it, we don't just simply see our faults. And, you know, people think they're being honest with themselves when they see their faults and their, their problems or their growing edges or defenses or sins, whatever you want to call it. But no, the, one of the hardest parts of ordinariness is to also be able to see our gifts, Because it's almost like we're frightened that if we we see our gifts, then, then people will desert us, that people will think we don't need anything, people won't support us. But that's a lie that has been taught to us by society. I think when we see our gifts, we can begin to say, boy, this is exciting. I've been given these things, you know, and it's been enhanced by friends. And now I can spend this time in my life you know, really trying to use these gifts. And I think we need to go through a number of phases with
0: those gifts. But there's also points where that dynamic comes to us, the gifts come to us in a way that we don't expect, or maybe even that we don't want. I'm thinking of an illustration that you give in your book, The Tao of Ordinariness, about a class and you're teaching this class, and you're noticing the interaction of two students, one who is very emotional and comes from an evangelical Christian background. The other, I believe, was a Buddhist and was yeah. very subdued but sat in front, and you could see that student's facial reactions to the student that was more kind of effusive and, and passionate. And there's one point, if I'm remembering the story correctly, where— where something breaks in the classroom it's just gone over the top, and the the Buddhist student who's been so reserved finally says something and after the class, you pull that student the Buddhist student aside and you say, that person who gets under your skin that's your spiritual director now first of all, have I remembered the story correctly and if I have yes. if I if I, if I have, what in the world did you mean that this person who's annoying you is your spiritual director what are you talking about well
1: And it was a timing thing. I think one of the issues in working with people that is not really emphasized enough is pacing and timing. Uh, I was supervising a a therapist once, and I said, you know, you, you said that. Well, it's correct. I said, well, it may be correct, but why now? Why did you say it now? you know because readiness is important so i watched the two of the students one was getting more and more passionate the evangelical and i watched him making faces you know and and no one could see it but me the buddhist you know so i let it play out and then uh, when she she got so excited she threw something and it just whizzed by my head well she she was upset then, and, and uh, she saw me later about it and said, you know, I, I, I didn't mean... I said, well, I said, one of the important gifts that I learned from spiritual writer Henry Nowen years ago when we were chatting in his little apartment up at Harvard was the importance of pruning. When you prune something, it doesn't blossom less, it blossoms more deeply. And I said, your passion is a gift. Oh, it's a beautiful gift. I said, but but the reality is that that unless you prune it, it's not gonna blossom deeply like when you prune. And then in his case, I noticed that he was making these faces, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, you think you're better than this other person, rather than in fact you have different gifts. So I waited a while and and as you said, I waited till the whole class left. I said, would you wait for a moment? And then he did. I said to him, she is your spiritual director. And he said, well, I'll have to think about that. I said, don't think about it. She is your spiritual director. And I left because the timing was right for him to see that the emotions in him were giving a tip. And the tip was to, in fact, begin to look at your own arrogance, your own over-the-topness and so that i find that the world can be your mentor if you have a sense of openness to be able to catch yourself when you have motive, have emotions that are very pronounced and then, then ask yourself why those emotions look at in good cognitive behavioral therapy take the emotions at the at the end of the day do a debriefing look at the objective the topography of the day psychologically peaks, valleys, then look at the subject of what did you feel about it, and then go underneath that and look at your cognitions, your ways of thinking, perceiving, and understanding that led to those emotions. And what you will find is a wealth of information about yourself. And the Dalai Lama said that when people were, didn't like him or angry with him or something, he said it was just so helpful to learn more about himself. And, and that is what I was trying to help him to see. Uh, That, that in fact, in looking at others, he failed to also simultaneously look at himself.
0: In the 12-step tradition, there's a phrase that's coming to mind, and the phrase is, if you spot it, you got it. In other words, if you're getting annoyed at what someone is doing, you should look to yourself because probably they're reminding you on some subconscious level that you don't like this aspect of yourself. Am I hearing that correctly in what you've just been saying?
1: Yes, I don't think it's quite as, you know, it, it, that has been spouted for a long time, and it it's not quite that simple. So we don't want to be simplistic about it, but what I'm saying is that often your reaction towards something Like somebody, you know, does something and then, you know, you get so worked up about it. And the temptation I have to say to people at times is, well, they're dying in the streets of Baltimore and you're upset about how this person is being narcissistic and monopolizing the conversation. What do you make of that? So that I think that when we blow things out of proportion it's saying something about our own vulnerability and our own fears and anxieties. So in that sense, yes, yes, you're right. I, I think it it's wonderful when we have these flags because the flags can teach us about ourselves. The problem is we stop too soon. And that's another thing with counselors and psychotherapists is one of the mistakes they make early on is, They stop the questioning too soon, say, and they accept the answer. So, for example, if somebody stops therapy, says, I'm going to stop therapy. And you say, well, what was the reason? And they say, well, I just I don't have the I can't afford it. Well, a lot of people just leave it. I said, no, no, say, in addition to not being able to afford it, what other reasons might you have? So I think emotion encourages us to push ourselves a little further in self-exploration Of ourselves, not just the poor motives and actions of others.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Robert J. Wicks about his recent book, The Tao of Ordinariness, Humility and Simplicity in a Narcissistic Age. Well, as we come to the conclusion of our conversation, a lot of what we've been talking towards kind of gets back to the theme of one of the central chapters in your book, The Tao of Ordinariness, the notion of kind of addressing the reputation you currently have with yourself. That chapter fascinated me because it was so multi-layered. It's not what other people are saying about us, if I've read you correctly. It's how we have internalized what other people have either said about us or what we've heard other people we think saying about us that then becomes the mantra, the kind of constant refrain that we're telling ourselves. Now, first of all, have I gotten the folds of that right, or or is there a different way to fold this intricate origami here?
1: No, that, that, I, I think that what strikes me about that is, I, I don't remember whether in the book I told the story about that the Iroquois tell of a chief who he would kill and eat people. And they tell this story of him being in his wigwam, you know, cooking this person he's killed in a pot, you know, so that he could eat him and absorb his mystical powers. And the peacemaker climbs to the top of the wigwam while the chief is in it, and he looks down through the hole in the top of the teepee. And at that point, When the the man who eats and kills people looks into the pot, he sees the reflection in the grease on the top of the pot of the peacemaker and thinks it to be his own face. And he, as a result, he pulls the pot outside, dumps it on the ground, calls the people together and says, I will never again kill and and, and eat the flesh of an enemy, for I have discovered my true face. And then at that point, the peacemaker comes down from the top of the Wigwam, say, the Iroquois, and embraces him and calls him Hiawatha. The reality of ordinariness is finding our name. What is our name? And that name often is not the one that has been given to us by society. And we need to have the courage to confront the reputation we currently have with ourselves
0: well, you, you used a phrase a moment ago that, that I just want to sort of linger with so that my listeners really have this clearly, this notion of discovering your true name, your true face. Yes. And uh, help me understand what that means, because when I was born, I was given a name. Isn't that my name? When I discover my true name, when I discover my true face, what are we talking about here? You, you use the word authenticity. I want to make sure that I'm tracking this right. That's, that's when we come to be our authentic selves.
1: I think that the world, the goodness in the world, calls us to embrace our, our name. If you look in scriptures, you'll see the the, the call, for example, in the Hebrew scriptures for to Abraham, to, to become Abraham, the father of his people, and Sarai to become Sarah, a woman filled with new potential. Both were doing fine. For me, for example... Embracing your own name means, like I, I once said, I think my name should be enthusiasm. And my wife said to me, she's, well, I don't really care for it. And I said, honey, this wasn't meant to be a sharing. This was more of a male thing. I announce it and you clap. That's what I had in mind, you know. And But I kept the name, but, but it really wasn't my name. And then I finally said to her, you know, maybe it should be passion. And she said, I think that's you. So that's the first name. Then, what happens as we get older into our 30s and 40s? That name needs to be pruned. And so, for me, I found that I was being intrusive and being passionate. So, I needed to be a gentle, passionate person. So, the pruning that I did really, I think, helped me deliver my central charisma, you know, my whole sense of being passionate. It matured it. And then I noticed that as I reached into my later 50s and 60s, that I needed to take a leap into the darkness. You know, first, I needed to have self-understanding, find my word or name. Second, I needed to experience pruning so that that name would be balanced. But finally, I needed to take a leap into the darkness, not step forward or lean back and prune it, but but leap, you know, as as one spiritual guide said to a mentor at that, a at that point, he said, uh, how are you growing spiritually? And he said, well, by step by step. And he said, well, you can't cross a chasm by taking little steps. You need to leap into the darkness. And the leap was to make my pruning word my central word. So for me, it was seeking to be gentle. Now, people would always see me as passion, but I put all this central energy on gentleness. Now, you might say, well, what's the darkness? Well, the darkness was that every time I focused on gentleness, I could see how in the past I wasn't. And when I focused on gentleness, even when I tried, I often failed. And you might say, well, then why would you continue doing that? Because it gave me great freedom. And I experienced what some people would call grace, where you realize you can't do it by yourself. And all of a sudden, the focus on switched to faithfulness from success, from self-accomplishment to recognizing that this was a journey or pilgrimage that involved other people and things greater than myself.
0: Professor Robert Wicks, it has been such a joy to speak to you, and I have learned a great deal from your book, The Tao of Ordinariness, but also just from this conversation and your generosity in allowing me to ask you questions that ranged kind of far from the book. I mean, I, I tried to use the book as a jumping off point, but you have blessed me by running with me in every direction that I've gone. And I can't thank you enough. I want to thank you for taking time to write the book. Uh, it's clear that it, it's a the response of deep reading and the result of much thought over many years and a storied career but also I want to thank you for taking time to speak with me and my listeners today you are most welcome we've been speaking today with Robert J Wicks he is professor emeritus from Loyola University in Maryland he's published more than 50 books for professionals and the general public He has lectured all over the world and lectures many times every year we've been speaking today about his recent book the Dow of ordinariness humility and simplicity in a narcissistic age